good morning. My name is Josh. If I haven't met you yet, glad to see you this morning. Uh, I lead the college uh, ministry here, Salt Company. You heard Josh get to talk about his trip this past summer going overseas, and that is like so sweet. Um, we also got to actually go on a fall retreat pretty recently, which was a ton of fun. We took a bunch of college students out, uh, basically just forced them to have extremely low sleep and an extremely high amount of the gospel over the course of one weekend, and it was a great time. So I, I felt so like blessed to get to spend time and do ministry with uh, the students from Georgia Tech and Georgia State and even Emory and other places too. It's, it's pretty amazing what uh, just like the impact that the colleges have in this city and the impact that churches can truly have on a college student's life. Um, so I, I just feel really lucky that I get to be a part of that. Um, one thing, just as I was like, Dahadi's like, hey, you should you know, fill him in on what's going on in your life. And so I figured I'd tell you guys that this morning I woke up one hour earlier than I intended to because I used one of those old $5 analog lock, uh, you know, alarm clocks. And it's like the worst, super loud, annoying from Walmart or something. And I thought to myself, you know what's going to happen this week at Blueprint? People are going to show up early. People are going to be filling the seats before 11.15 because they have one extra hour to do so. And I was wrong. So I'm not a prophet, but you know, you guys can uh, meditate on that, I guess, if you really want to. But um, for real though, uh, one, one thing I do want to just start us off with is I want to tell a story from uh, my time in college. When I was a freshman, I walked up got into my first class, go to my first recitation, super early, 8 a.m., and I lean over, introduce myself to the guy who's next to me. I forget his name, but he calls me John. And I was like, my name's Josh. And I was like, I'm, it's too early. I don't care. Not a big deal. I won't meet this guy ever again. But that dude just like stuck around me the entire semester long. And I had so many ample opportunities to tell him, hey man, my name is Josh. And he heard other people call me Josh. And I was like, this is, it's too late. It's done. I'm, I'm officially John to this dude. And there's nothing I can do about it. And like, it like, like, it was so weird. We'd like see each other like junior year in college and I'm hanging out with like my buddies. And he's like, hey, John, how are you doing? And I'm like, all my friends are like, what, what's going on right now? This is so weird. And it like, it made me question like, who am I? Am I John now? Like, is that truly who I am? I've, I've embraced this for so long that I must just be John. Um, and, and it really like kind of taught me something. It's like, man, our names matter. And when people call us by the wrong name, it feels super weird. And when I call somebody else by the wrong name, I like want to disappear, you know, it's like, oh, why'd I do that? I do that all the time. It's like not a skill of mine. Um, I'm sorry, Ben, I've done that to you. Uh, I'm sorry, Nate, I've done that to you. So it's like, like, it's something I loathe because it speaks deeply to us who we are. Our names matter. Today, the text that Mitchell just read is a letter from Jesus to a church that had gone through a ton of painful experiences. Specifically, it went through a really painful series of earthquakes around 17 AD. So that's like before Jesus' ministry had actually started, but already before that, this city endures pain and heartache. And the city itself goes through two name changes in less than 50 years. It was, called, uh, it was called Flavia, it was called Neo-Caesarea, and then it's called Philadelphia. Each time it's changing, and, and like with it, the identity is changing. And with it, the people that are there have experienced this pain, and so they leave. And so the population of the city is depleting, and they don't even know who they are anymore. 
And so when Jesus writes this letter to this church, he's speaking to a church that's experienced deep pain and real suffering and extensive trials. He's writing to a church that hardly remembers who they are anymore. They don't even know their own name. And how does Jesus speak to the church that doesn't know themselves? This isn't a church, you'll you'll look at it, you might have heard, there wasn't a challenge. It wasn't like, you guys are doing this wrong, so repent, like it has been to many of the other churches that Jesus writes to. No, he's writing to a church that's hurting and doesn't know its own identity. That's who he's writing to. So the question I think I have for us today and that this text is asking is like, how does Jesus speak to people who don't know who they are? And I think it's time for us to ask ourselves, like, do we ever feel like that? You know, like, have you ever had a moment where you're like, man, who am I right now? Maybe it was like a really painful relationship that you either broke up or even had a divorce. And it causes you to question, like, who am I? Is this, is this who I am now? Maybe you, uh, maybe you got laid off from a job or you got fired in a painful way or you had to quit because it was a toxic work environment and, and you're like, I, my identity was in my job and now I don't even know my name anymore. I don't know who I am. Maybe you lost a loved one and it's caused you to rethink and reconsider like, man, what is going on? Why am I here? If I can't love my friends and my family and I can't even be there for them and they leave me, then who am I? Maybe it wasn't an external earthquake that shattered the foundations of your life. Maybe it was more of an internal one. You ran into some sin in your life and you found yourself walking further and further away from Jesus and you question, who am I? A follower of Jesus wouldn't do that. They wouldn't stumble like that. They wouldn't say those things. They wouldn't do those things. Something else must be happening here. If that's how you feel, then this text is for you. If you've ever felt that way, this text is for you. And if you think you won't ever feel this way, you're wrong. We're promised that we're going to face trials of many kinds. We're going to run into hard moments. So right now, even if you're so certain in your identity in Christ, this text is for you. I want you to know who you are today. I want this word to speak to us and that we would know who Jesus is and we would know ourselves more deeply. So what does Jesus actually preach to a church? that doesn't know its own name, he does two things. He brings clarity and he brings hope. He brings clarity. He, he starts off this way. I just want to like read those first couple of verses again. He says, write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, thus says the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close and who closes and no one will open. Jesus starts off by giving himself four names. He clarifies who he is. He's like, this is my name. You might not know yours, but here's mine. And I think what what it's telling us here, the scripture is saying to us, when I don't know my own name, the best place to look isn't out in the wilderness. It isn't out in some mystical village. It's not running far from God. It's not trying to seek and find myself. It's to seek and know him. Because when I know his name, then I can know mine. Jesus is helping us to understand who we are by first clarifying who he is. So he gives us his name that we might understand ourselves. And I want to pause here for one second because I think I've heard a lot of people say something along these lines where they're like, God is just unknowable. There is so much that we cannot know about God. What's the point? 
I've heard that from Christians. I've heard it from non-Christians. I've heard it from people on all different places in the spectrum of life. And at the heart of this is, I think there's something true there. Like God is infinite. He is amazing. He is above our understanding in so many ways. They're, they're, I'm not claiming here today that we're going to know everything there is to know about God. But we come and we actually hear from God in his word. He reveals himself to us. If we say he's unknowable when he says, this is who I am, we're wrong. He's declaring his name over us that we might understand it. So we come to learn and to take from him. There's a theologian named Herman Bavink who says it this way. It's not we who call God by these names. We don't invent them. On the contrary, if it depended on us, we would be silent about him. We'd try to forget him and we disown all of his names. We take no delight in the knowledge of his ways and we tend continually to oppose his names, his independence, his sovereignty, his righteousness and his love and we resist them in all of its perfections. But if it is God himself who reveals all of his perfections and puts his names on our lips, it's he who gives himself these names and who, despite our opposition, maintains them. So church, we come to the word of God to hear from God who he is. And right here in this text, we see four names that God gives himself. Four names and titles, kind of a mixture. The first one that he says is that he is the Holy One. He's distinct. He's other. He's different. He's separate. He's set apart from everything else that exists. He isn't like other things. He is dislike them. He is separate from them, and he is unique. He is holy. He is God. He is separate from our understanding. So we're acknowledging he is different. There's something different about this God, too. He is true. He's not the God of half-truths and lies. He's the God of total truth in all honesty. He is genuine and real. And specifically, he's not the God of false truths. He's not the God of a false religion and false worship. He's the God of the true kind of worship. And we see it later. He, he even condemns the synagogue of Satan, the one where people are claiming to be the true Jews, the one who are the true religion. And he's saying, no, 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 you're ignoring me. You've missed me. And so you are no longer walking in holiness. You're no longer worshiping the, the true God of the universe. And I do want to say, this text isn't licensed for us to go and be like Kanye and Kyrie right now. That's not the point, you know? Anti-Semitism is not the heart of the gospel. The gospel is actually inviting people in to the true relationship with Jesus. That's what's happening here. It isn't uh, us versus them. It's not better than, less than. It's an invitation with humility and honesty to walk alongside people who need Jesus just like I do and just like you do. So Jesus says, I'm the holy one. Two, I'm the true one. And then third, he says, I'm the one who has the key of David. In other words, he's, he's making an allusion to the Old Testament. He's saying, I have authority over all of Israel. I have authority over every single leader and every single ruler. He's in charge of it all. He's saying, I'm holy, I'm true, and I'm authoritative over everything. Jesus is setting up something really important for us right now. And then the fourth name that he gives himself, the fourth title, he says, I'm the one who opens the doors that no one can close. And I close the doors that no one can open. He's saying, I don't just have authority, I have power. 
I'm not just a title figurehead. I have control over the smallest and the biggest things in this world. And this is going to be setting us up to understand if that's who God is, then what is he going to do? He brings clarity. He says, this is who I am. I am holy. I am true. I am authoritative and I am powerful. That's our God. That's who he is to us. And then he clarifies one more thing. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep you safe. And I am going to make sure that every door is open that ought to be open. And I will close every door that ought to be closed. If we look a little bit further in verse 10, we see this. It says, he's talking to this church that's endured so much, right? They got past the earthquakes. They got past the pain and the suffering. And he says, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I think reading that verse, it could be tempting to think, oh man, this is amazing. If I experienced some trial in my life, if I, if I went through the earthquake, then I'm guaranteed no more because he's going to keep me from it. That, that like, season of trial, it's not coming for me. And I, I want to pause for one moment here because Jesus doesn't say that to the other churches. The other churches actually says, you will endure more. You, you should endure trials even to death. You should go to the end. I think something unique is happening where Jesus is talking to these people who've endured much. And he's encouraging them to say, hey, I, I see you. I know the pain of your suffering. I know the endurance that you've had to have to walk through these things. And I'm going to keep you. I'm going to protect you. And so instead of it being a license for us to look back at our, like, you know, yesterday and say, man, that was a tough day, so today better be good. I think what he's saying is, no, no, no. I will never give you too much. I will never overload you beyond what you can bear if you're in me. If you're in Christ, this will be the right amount of testing for you. In fact, in James, it puts it this way. James says to the people in his church, and he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You see, this is a church that's been tested and has produced endurance. And here's the verse that I have been thinking about a lot this week. And let your endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. You see that? It's like, let endurance have its full effect. Don't dip out early. Don't run from something that just seems hard. You see suffering and pain ahead of you? Don't avoid it. Let endurance have its full effect that you might be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. How then can we know? How do we know if it's enough? How do we know that God is actually like, got the right amount ahead of me? How, how can I know that I'm safe to endure? Because sometimes it feels like it's too much. You, you get in the moment, you feel the earthquake shatter, and you're like, man, this is too much. And guys, earthquakes, something interesting about them, the first initial earthquake isn't the most dangerous one. It's the aftershocks that follow. It's the first one that loosens and breaks the structural grounding, and then it's the second and the third one and the fourth one that follow that make everything tumble and fall. If we are a church and if we are people who feel one earthquake and we think there's no way another one could follow, then we're setting ourselves up to crumble and fall. 
If we're a church that thinks once I've gone through one season of pain, there's no more coming, we are setting ourselves up for failure. We will never endure, but we do have hope. Jesus gives us hope. He says, no, 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 I'm keeping you. There is a moment where we will have to endure, but then there is a moment where he will keep us because he is good and he is safe and he is strong. He opens the doors and he closes them. When he gives us the door, it isn't an escape valve. It's not running away from our problems. It's running to his arms. And when he closes the door, he's not avoiding us. He's inviting us to walk into pain and suffering that we might know him more. In both cases, we can trust that the God who is holy, the God who is true, the God who is powerful and authoritative, that he's doing the best thing for us. He cares for you. He sees you, he knows you, and he has your best interest at his heart. So we know that when Jesus talks to his church, he clarifies first who he is, and then second, he clarifies what he will do for us. But he also brings hope. He doesn't just give us clarity. He gives us hope. We can hope in his promises. We can hope in the new creation to come. Guys, read this again with me. Starting in in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and I will write my new name. Jesus is going to mark us with God's name, his name, and the name of the new city. He's claiming us. I think this moment here, it's supposed to remind us and make us think back to what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, God made humanity and he says, I make you in my image. He marks us then. He then goes to Adam and he gives him a new name. He calls him Adam, the human. He then even gives Adam the authority to make names for all of the other animals. And he says, go and spread my name far and wide, spread the garden, bring it out. Let everyone know my name in all of creation. But humanity doesn't embrace that challenge. They walk away from it and they build the Tower of Babel. And do you know why they build the Tower of Babel? It says specifically that we might make a name for ourselves. Humanity takes this name from God and they decide to make a name for themselves. And guys, I think that that's what's tempting Philadelphia. And it's actually what's tempting us here today. The city of Atlanta is a city that's made a name for itself. It's about coming in like, oh man, let's, you cannot believe what you can do in Atlanta. The culture here, the music here, the scenes here, you can rise up and become great in Atlanta. You can make a name for yourself in Atlanta. That's what Atlanta wants you to think is right. Jesus is saying something totally different. He's saying, no, no, no. I want to make a name for myself in you. I want to plaster my name onto you that you might know who you truly are. And that's why we sit and we hear and we think and we remind ourselves of God's names. And now it says there that Jesus is going to put his new name on us. He's going to tattoo it. He's going to mark us with his new name. And we don't know what that name is but we do know over a hundred other names and titles from the Bible. Names that we can meditate on and believe in and remind ourselves of. And I think right now, it's just, we need to hear them. This isn't all of them, but it's some. Names for God, given to God by God, that we might know him more. He's the father. 
He's the son and he's the spirit. He is our provider, our helper, our healer, and our keeper. He's our prince of peace. He's the alpha and the omega, the lion of Judah and the lamb of God. He is the Messiah. He is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the God of gods. He's the good shepherd and the Lord of armies. Our God, he's the everlasting father. He's Emmanuel, ancient of days and friend of sinners. He's the creator, the redeemer, the savior, and the architect. He's the bridegroom. He's the all-consuming fire. He's our fortress and our hiding place. The God of this universe, he's the high tower, the refuge, the rock, and the ruler. He is our shield, our song, our deliverer, and our judge. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He's the one who has the key of David, and he's the one who opens and closes every door. That is our God. And there's one more title that wasn't given to him by God, but by given by man. It was given sarcastically in mockery. And it was nailed to the cross above his head. And it was the king of the Jews. And Jesus took that name and he bore the crown of thorns, not one of honor and glory, but one of shame and embarrassment. He bore that for us. Jesus hung on the cross with a new name in shame and in embarrassment that we might have his true name, that we might have his new name across us, bared on us, that we might represent it to the world around us. That's the good news of the gospel. The gospel, this of Jesus Christ, it changes us. Jesus was given the title king and then given the crown of thorns that we might have the crown of life and walk in newness forever. And when we remind ourselves of the names of God, we remind ourselves of our names too. If he's the provider then you are provided for. If he's the helper, then you're helped. And if he's the healer, then you've been healed. If he's the keeper, then he will keep you. And if he's the counselor, you've been counseled. If he's the creator, then you're created. And if he's our father, we're children of God. He's the redeemer, you're redeemed. He's the savior and you've been saved. He bore the crown of thorns so that we could bear his crown of life and he became our sin that we might become his righteousness. That's our God. That's his name. That's why we come. It's why we open this word together. We sit there that we might know him more, that we might know ourselves some. The gospel is the good news that my name isn't primarily rooted in my accomplishments. It's not rooted in what I've done, but that my name is rooted in his, in his accomplishments, in his work, in his finished glory. That's the good news of the gospel. That's what we rest in today. And today, in our whole text, there's only one command for us. There's one thing. It says, hold on to what you have that you might not lose your crown. Hold on to what you have that you might not lose your crown. Blueprint Church. We are a church who has endured a lot. We've been fighting and we've experienced a lot of trials and sometimes it's really, really hard to hold on, but the good news is that when we cling to Jesus, he holds us firm. He holds us with everything. And we don't cling to our accomplishments. We don't cling to our performance. We cling to his name. 
because it is holy and true and eternal and perfect. And he is the one worth resting in. And he is the one who gives us life. So we need to know, to actually hold on to his name, we need to know his name and know our name. We serve a God who's beyond our comprehension and yet intimately knowable to us. It's a great paradox, but it's beautiful. And we get to walk in it. He chooses to interact with us. The psalmist says, who am I? What is humanity that you look down on us and that you know us? That's our God. He has a hundred different names and titles and it's our job to learn them, to know them, to believe them. Because today I might need to know that he's my rock and my shield and tomorrow I need to know he's my refuge and high tower. Who knows what tomorrow brings us, but I do know that I need the name of God seared on my heart that I might walk in holiness for another day to endure once more. And I think one thing that might rob us of this understanding, one thing that might turn us away from this belief, might want us to not even know his name, is believing that our names are etched by our sin. That our sin is too much, it's too far gone, it's gone for too long, I can't possibly be known by his name, I'm known by my sin now. A pastor that I know and love is named Saul, he, he says it this way, Satan knows your name but calls you by your sin. But Jesus knows your sin and calls you by your name. When you feel the t- constant shame and the, the weight of your sin, and it's like, man, you're, you're an evil person. You're a liar, slanderer, thief, gossip, adulterer, whatever it is. If that's the title that reigns on you, no, that isn't from God. He's come to give freedom and grace and forgiveness and holiness. And he calls you by your name, that you are a child of God and a citizen of heaven. That's who you are. That's your name. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he hung on the cross for your sins and died three days later, that's your new name. There's no questions, if, and, or buts about it. That's who you are. And so you get to rest. You get to hold fast to his name and know yours. So to hold fast to his name, we hold it tightly and we learn to know it, but we also display it proudly. I think, I think of like holding up a trophy. You don't see the Golden State Warriors win the NBA championships and then grab the trophy, this new title that they've given. It's like, oh man, they're world championship 2022. And then go and like hide it. They display the name that's been etched onto them and they hold it up high for the whole world to see. It's just, that isn't very good news for everybody else. It's good news for Steph Curry fans, I guess, not for LeBron fans. The, the good news for us is that we are his. And so we declare it loudly for everyone to know. And it's great news for them too, because the same truth that has saved us saves them. When Josh and Kaylee went overseas this summer, they decided to bear his name proudly that some might pledge their allegiance to Jesus and fall at the foot of the cross. That's what we're called to do. You need to know his name. You need to know your name. And then you need to bear his name publicly, proudly, and as often as you can. That's the call of the Christian. To be transformed by the gospel and then to display the gospel. In closing, I think there's one picture of this that I've gotten to experience um, in a more beautiful way than almost any other way I've I've experienced. And it's, it's through marriage. 
You know, my wife, Tracy's Wassenaar now, one Spears, now Wassenaar, took on my name when I didn't even deserve it or earn it. She has been the biggest encouragement to me. She has held up my name and she's honored it when I don't deserve it. She has stood by me and she has clung to me. She has gotten to know me more and more every single day. And I am honored that she chose to take on my last name. And I think, women, if you've taken on the last name of your husband, which you don't have to do, you're getting a head start on what it looks like to take on his name. Like, there's a lot of annoying things to do. You have to go and, you know, change, like, all the logistic rules, and you have to get new credit cards, and you have to get new IDs, and it's just a, it's a big pain. The one nice thing about taking on the name of our king is, like, the work's all done for us. It wasn't about you going out and fighting hard and making the right changes. It's about him declaring something to be true over you eternally. And marriage is a picture of the gospel. One day, his church, us, blueprint, the churches in this city, the churches in this country, the churches in this world will walk down and we will see Jesus, our betrothed, coming for us. And we will be in communion with him for eternity in the new kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. So Blueprint, I want us to be that church. I want us to live that out today. I want us to be that now, to know his name and to declare it loudly. So let's pray that that's who we would be. Father, we are so honored, so honored to be here this morning. We're honored to open up your word and to hear from you. We're honored that you look down at us and you think of us that you actually care about us and that you care about us enough to reveal who you are to us, that you tell us your name, that you declare over all of creation who you are and that we get to have that name etched on us too. So Father, remind us of who you are daily. Remind us of who we are because of who you are. Let our identities be rooted in you and not in anything else and hold us fast. Let it help us endure the hardest of trials and let us enjoy and celebrate the best of moments. We are yours. And we want to walk with you for the rest of our lives. And along with the prayer and revelation, we say the same thing. Lord, come soon. Come and come soon. Take us home. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, Today we get to continue our worship by taking communion together. And so as uh, the ushers pass out the communion, I I want us to slow down and I want us to meditate. I want us to consider what are the names of God that we need to be reaffirming in our lives today. Communion is a time where Christians in the church gather together and we remember something beautiful about our King. And so if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, that's okay. You can just pass it on by. But also today is an invitation to, for the first time, say, no, no, not my name, but yours. Today, as we take communion together, I ask that you would consider, what is the space in my life? Oh, you guys can keep passing. Oh, sorry. Like, what is the space in my life where I need to be reminded of his name now? So let's take a moment to pause, to be silent with Jesus right now.
and to consider those things. And then I'll, when we'll come back and we'll take these things together. That night, the last supper where Jesus would sit with his disciples before he would hang on the cross with that new name, King of the Jews, bolted on above his head, above his crown of thorns. He sat down with the ones he loved most and he said, this is my body, which is for you. So do this in remembrance of me. You can eat the bread. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Father, we have gathered here today to remember the cross, to remember who you are, to remember the grace and the forgiveness and the love that you've poured out on us. And we've come here to gather to remember your name and to worship your name. Yours is the name that's above every other name. Yours is the only name that's worth being praised. And so today we sing, we rejoice, we remind ourselves of the truth that you are the only eternal God, that you are truly holy, truly loving, truly good, and that you care for us. And so we thank you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.